Welcome to another episode of Bitcoin Fixes This. And I have with me two uh, amazing journalists slash uh, media people uh, from Bitcoin Magazine, Aaron Van Wertham and David Bailey. Welcome to the show, guys. Hey, Jay. Hey, thank you. And hey, just to clarify, I am not a journalist. Aaron is the only journalist uh, on the <laughs> I think Dave and I were both kind of laughing when you said that. <laughs> okay, uh, well, that that's okay, you know, like, because the word journalist kind of doesn't mean that much anymore. I, I don't know if you guys would agree, but like, uh, you I'm know, the, the state of journalism is just like very different than what it was, say, 30 years ago. Yeah. Hmm. Uh, I mean, journalism was always like an open profession, right? It was never a thing where you needed to have some sort of specific qualification to be a journalist. Everyone always could call themselves a journalist. Uh, it's easier nowadays to self-publish, but I don't think that's what you're getting at. Like, I would say it's actually there's more journalists now, but maybe the term journalism or journalist has gone out of fashion. I, that's more what you're getting at, I think, Jimmy. Is that right? Yeah, I, I'm just talking about sort of uh, what we used to think of as journalists, the people that we saw on TV that had certain standards on truth and things like that um that seems to have changed i don't know what what your perspective on this is i don't know if there was really ever a standard i think mm. just the illusion of the standard uh has has changed and i mean maybe there was a standard i mean i'm not a media guy i'm not a journalist like i i am an amateur that uh stumbled into media uh by accident not even truly uh, <laughs> with intention um <laughs> But yeah, I think, uh, you know, now uh, I, I think journalist is really like a, a priest of types. It's a gatekeeper of, of uh, reality. And uh, I think that, you know, as you have more and more voices that have entered the, the town square, um, you know, what is reality uh, is, is a contentious topic. And I think that the people who had the power of being that gatekeeper are losing it and they don't like it. Hmm. Well, let's talk about that a little bit, because traditional media has certainly um, lost a lot of, you know, their audience at the very least. Uh, you know, you, you look at the ratings of almost any TV show, you look at the circulation of any newspaper or magazine, all of those have gone down tremendously. And in its place, we've gotten a lot more, you know, independent journalists off of YouTube on uh, X now and, you know, Rumble even. Uh, you know what what what's what's going on here and uh, how how did it get so strange so fast um i mean i'll i'll just sort of spitball on this uh, premise so actually when i studied journalism so when i studied journalism so it's like 15 to 20 years ago or something like that there was uh like the internet was just sort of coming up and internet journalism was just sort of starting to come up and especially like bloggers at that time and blogs that were starting to compete with old media so to say and within the sort of school of journalism where I studied that was sort of uh, frowned upon in a way or not seen as something positive necessarily and my sort of graduating thesis kind of took the opposite approach in it in a way where my, what, what i was arguing at that time 
was that I thought that the alternative media that were sort of upcoming could be a way to be sort of a check on the mainstream media. So in the same way that journalism or the media itself is seen as a check on politics, for example, there should also be a check on journalism. So my vision was sort of that the alt media, alternative media bloggers could be sort of a check on that. Like if media aren't doing their job or aren't focusing on a specific topic enough, then there was now more room to sort of correct that in a way, right? Um, now, fast forward 20 years later, I, I do think that's partly happening. Like there's some of that, but it's also becoming so sort of dispersed. That, that's the right English word, right? That everyone's sort of finding their own niche, their own thing that they like and their own websites and their own perspective. And there isn't even sort of this single thing anymore. There isn't even this mainstream anymore. Like the mainstream is kind of disappearing. So it's not, it, it's less and less serving as a check on the mainstream, but just the mainstream is sort of dissolving into all these separate islands. I don't know if it, uh, that's only a good thing. I, <laughs> I, I, I'm really not sure if that's only a good thing. So if you don't mind me, I'll just keep rambling for a bit. <laughs> all right. So in the Netherlands, this actually was the case for a while. So that we called that the verzuiling. And uh, so the country was really divided in the sense that the, uh, so there were the Protestants, there were the Catholics, and I think just the non-religious. And they had their own newspapers, they had their own schools, they had their own churches, obviously. And it was really a very disconnected society that didn't communicate with each other. And there was something dysfunctional about that. And then with the emergence of the television, there was such a popular medium that people from these different parts started to watch the same things. So really for the first time, they started hearing each other's information and hear, seeing each other's point of view. And there was sort of a unifying aspect to that where everyone sort of found a sort of common ground truth. And I do think that's also healthy. I think it's healthy if people can find a common truth that everyone can sort of agree on and base their policies on and sort of you know, you have to run a society in a way and in one, you know, you have to run a society, you have to live together. So it's, it's kind of good if you have that. And now we're sort of seeing the opposite happening where everyone's finding their own island and we're seeing the early stages of that. I don't know where that's going to lead. I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing all across the board. I think there's downsides to that. It's good if people hear each other's perspectives and opinions and keep talking and settle on some sort of common truth. Yeah, I mean, just to piggyback on that, like, uh, uh, I agree that there are some pretty big downsides with it as well. Like, so you have this free market of ideas, which in one sense is like the ideas should compete against each other and that results in better ideas. But then what, you know, I've kind of seen happening and I think this is not just a phenomenon for our industry, but um, as you become, you know, uh, uh, as ideas are really driven rather than like ideological consistency, it's driven by attention and you build an audience and you build a community that follows um, your content, um, you become captured by your audience. 
and then you need to deliver content that that audience wants regardless of the veracity of that, that content. <laughs> so like, uh, like there are people that, you know, basically make their whole business really on just like feeding up what they know, like red meat, I guess you could say for their audience, regardless of like whether they believe it or not. You can see it in all sorts of kind of like niche fringe communities. It, it's, I see it in Bitcoin and crypto. I see it in uh, the vaccine debate and medicine. Like, you know, th there can be, the truth is very nuanced. The reality is very nuanced generally. So there's generally not like just one pervasive idea that's 100% accurate. But when you build these communities, that's what your community wants is just one pervasive idea that, you know, their preconceived notions are not challenged. So, yeah, I think that that creates a problem where like then it's no longer really um, a competition of ideas that's happening anymore because there really isn't any competition. Like people aren't hearing ideas that challenge what they think. They're just really kind of having reinforced beliefs on maybe even information that's not even real. Um, mm. So yeah, I think that that's a, a weird <laughs> dynamic and I don't know, I don't know what the solution to that is. Um, uh, I mean, I, even, even in Bitcoin, you kind of see that happening, right? Even in Bitcoin, you see these different sort of islands forming where people have their own preconceived things. And that was so great about the conference we're putting up. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good way to work that in, right? Well, we do have a conference that sort of invites different positions, which I like. Yeah, no, I feel like we've been kind of on the on the front lines of that some because we, you know, we have uh, uh, some very controversial things that like we've given a platform to or things that like um, we've supported or whatever not supported. And it's like, you know, it, it, there's a real pressure, a strong pressure to deliver what your audience, your existing audience wants, like a very strong pressure. So yeah, audience so capture, yeah. Yeah, so much so that if you deliver something that your audience doesn't want, you start getting phone calls in from sponsors, from advertisers, from supporters, like the pressure is laid on you. So it's it's tough. It's tough to, to uh, try to take a nuanced approach to topics when, um, especially with like the advent of social media, people's attention on a topic, it's not like they're reading a book. I feel like if you're reading, like if someone's engaging with you in a book, you can get fucking nuanced. Like they're gonna give you the time of day to like hear out the argument. If you're like, if you have three tweets, and sometimes you don't even get a full tweet. Sometimes people just read the first sentence in a tweet and that's all they need to like go. So it's like, okay, how do you have like a substantive discussion with someone that's nuanced when you have seven, eight words to, to like, you know, get them to engage with you? Well, so how, how much of that, David, is uh, is financially driven? Because uh, I, I feel like, um, at least before, it used to be that journalism was almost like a public service. And, you know, people like a lot of news divisions, for example, lost a lot of money and so on. Um, and, and now it feels like kind of like what you're saying. It's, it's another consumer good where people are consuming things that they want. And it's, uh, it's not really about truth anymore. So, I mean, obviously you, you're running a company that's uh, mm -hmm. that's delivering something and making a profit and so on. Uh, how, well, how much of that is? But how much of it is economic? You know, I think, um, well, first off, you know, even though there's not like a market price of attention, like the dopamine hit that people get from attention might as well have a dollar amount on it. 
So there's like a bunch of like citizen journalists out there cultivating and building a community where they make no money, but like that hit, that rush they get when they get that 2,000 like tweet or whatever, that's enough payment for them to be like satisfied. Um, you know, I think, you know, I'd actually say from my perspective, and again, I'm an amateur at this, from my perspective, probably business interest had more entanglement in the previous model because like the journalist, um, they were kind of disconnected from the sponsor because like let's say you have like a managing editor and the managing editor has an editor-in-chief and then the editor-in-chief responds to like a, you know, a GM or a president or whatever. <clears throat> and so they're just focused on their story and the business guys are, um, you know, trying to figure out how to monetize around it. But if a sponsor spends enough money at a media company, they make a call to up the pyramid of the organization and like there will be blackouts on topics. There will be stories that are killed, like 100%. Like it's, that still is happening. But I, like in the past, it, you could do it and there's really no alternative vehicle to get that message or material out. Um, now, like especially with, with you know, um, today's like day and age, I think one of the strengths of this like uh, town square environment that we're in is like, okay, if some company wanted to pay us money to censor a topic, it would not work at all. Like we don't have we don't have the ability to do that. So, um, like I think, uh, I think businesses have lost control of having this like unilateral control of the landscape. But then, like they're they're in these like attention economies where people are trying to build their community. Like a citizen journalist needs to make five thousand dollars a month, whatever it is that their cost of living is, and so. You know that leads back to like the capture. They don't want to lose their their audience because they need that for their for their income. So I don't know. I think I think it's changed, but I, I'd actually say uh, probably for the better in general in terms of just like the information that's coming out um, having many different conflicting perspectives rather than just like one unilateral view. Well, the 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 biggest thing that changed though is that people used to or buy a newspaper right so you pay a an amount for a newspaper and then you get all the content in the newspaper um which is a i would say a pretty healthy funding model for media that's and that's also kind of again i would say healthy in the sense that people also encounter articles they weren't necessarily expecting or weren't necessarily looking for and nowadays, because of the advertising, like it's all advertising, essentially, like yeah. the, it, it all comes down to advertising. And that means it all comes down to attention. And that means it all comes down to algorithms. And it's basically just feeding the algorithm what it wants that that's sort of that that's a shift. I don't know if that's good. I, I don't think that's good. Actually, I think that's probably yeah. not good. That's fair. No, I think, I like, I think it would be better like, content. It absolutely, it, the incentives are aligned. Like the mm -hmm. content creator is aligned with the, the audience consuming the content. Um, totally agree. Yeah, ads are definitely sort of the currency now instead of like direct payment, like, uh, like Aaron, you were saying. And, uh, and, and that does sort of like change everything because it's all about attention rather than truth and you're you're serving sort of like a different uh different thing because your your users end up being the product right like the the people that are reading they're not paying you but the advertisers are so 
it's your ability to capture the audience that becomes the critical uh, thing. So let, let's dig down that hole a little bit. Like, how, how does that change, like, what sort of stories uh, come out? And how does that change, you know, what, what gets reported and, um, you, know, what, you know, what goes out to the media, I, I, out to the audiences, I guess? I mean, a, a lot of it, like I mentioned, is literally trying to feed the algorithm whatever it wants. Uh, it, it, it's really sort of discovering what the algorithm is interested in, which is a very kind of weird, you know, you're not even really thinking about what people want. You're thinking about what the <laughs> algorithm wants. Now, of course, the algorithms should be designed to give readers what they want in a way. But mm -hmm. I, I mean, I think we're like the internet is still quite new, right? We're still mm -hmm. learning so much and discovering stuff. And I really think that this is sort of a phase where everyone's just getting fat on sugar and we haven't figured out how to actually create a healthy diet yet. It, it, mm -hmm. I, I, I think we need to come up with better solutions. And there are interesting experiments, but I, I suspect that paying for media will probably have to be a part of that rather than just the attention grabbing techniques. But I mean, there's no real solution yet. I mean, there's successful pockets here and there. Mm -hmm. You know, there are websites that have paywalls that are working, uh, but that's, there's also a lot of, uh, that. that's not a lot. It doesn't work very often. And so there's successful models, uh, mm -hmm. subscription models. There, there are things that are working, but just across the board, we're all still trying to figure it out. And, and that's the situation we're in. Yeah, I would say the only, you know, maybe only is the wrong word, but the media company that in my mind that seems to have figured it out the best is Disney. Um, it's almost all driven by the end user. Um, you buy tickets to their park, you buy their merchandise, um, you buy their movies, you buy their subscription products very little of their revenue comes from advertisers or sponsors. Um, and I think like that's, um, uh, you know, the kind of a, a multi-pronged approach where you're, where you're building a, a vibrant community that wants to engage in a lot of ways is probably the, the best model that's out there. Um, mm -hmm. You know, in terms of like, how does the sponsorship dollars change the content? So I don't know if we're the best example to, to ask that to, because we're like a, struggling media company. So like maybe our <laughs> calculus is like done differently than like, you know, some big media company out there. But like for us, like we basically have um, a journalist that cover whatever they see as like the news, whatever is fit to print or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then we have like a business team that's out there trying to trying to find sponsors to support some line of programming. So like right now the business team is like pitching sponsors on basically being like the title presenting sponsor of a mining uh, section to Bitcoin Magazine. And we're gonna just create mining content. They don't have any influence over that mining content, but like they get to be like the presenting sponsor of this like section of content that we're gonna put a dedicated journalist on. So from our perspective, we look at it as like, hey, there's content that we wish we could cover that if we had infinite dollars, we would already have a dedicated beat writer for mining that was like focused on that, but we just don't have the economics of it. So we're looking for kind of partners that want to ride along with our brand and support that type of content. 
uh, and that would be like uh, in addition to the content that we would just we 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 publish because it's news. Um, but again, we're a very lean operation at Bitcoin Magazine. I mean, even more lean this year because we we uh, reduced our our staff um, significantly. So, uh, like I, I think at bigger media companies, the fact is is I haven't really been involved in any media company that isn't struggling. <laughs> like I'm on the board of a, a of a media company that's quite large, and I mean uh, they're they're just bleeding out of every orifice, and it seems like they're going to be toast like every other quarter and somehow they always pull it through and i feel like that's just been media for the past decade is like just surviving surviving um so yeah yeah i i've seen that in in a lot of places it, it does seem like they're all kind of going i guess the business equivalent of living paycheck to paycheck right like just all right well can we get a little money here a little money there um it, it's it's very strange to me because uh, in many ways, a lot of these older media companies used to make a decent amount of money. And, you know, they, they were, um, you know, when Rupert Murdoch, for example, was going out and acquiring all these newspapers and TV stations and stuff like that. This was, the, you know, the, this was the strategy. It was it was a great business. Um, I mean, has the Internet like destroyed that? Like what? what why? Why is it? So why are the economics so bad? Yeah, I mean, I think Aaron, I mean, nailed it. The, the, uh, when you're able to sell, if, if every one of our readers paid us 50 cents every week, like we'd be printing money. Um, so, you know, it's very difficult to make that happen. And even like the, the so you, you go for distribution, you want reach for your content. Okay, so we're active on, on Twitter. I think Bitcoin Magazine is probably maybe the biggest Bitcoin Twitter handle. Uh, probably generates the most traffic um, of any Bitcoin Twitter handle. We'll publish an, uh, a story on Twitter. Um, maybe like it gets 5,000 likes, hmm. okay? Maybe through Twitter, those 5,000 likes, it translates to 2,000 people that click through to the article. Hmm. So like the, the amount of like, the amount of people who actually even read the content anymore mm -hmm. it's just unbelievable like it's like you know we'll get more shares on an article than we have people that read the article um which is wild <laughs> wait, wait that's us really something is off there like there are more reshares of the article than there are actual views of the article yeah is I mean, what maybe, you're saying maybe, maybe i'm like being a little mm -hmm. bit like maybe mm -hmm. maybe there's uh 50% more or something, but it's like, mm -hmm. it's within the spitting distance of the number of reshares of an article can match the distribution and reach of an article, especially if we're just measuring like traffic from Twitter specifically mm -hmm. as a, as a traffic source. Yeah, absolutely. And so it's are, like, are, are there that many bots? What's what, what, like that doesn't I, I make sense it's, to it's, me. Right. I, I mean, mean, there's I, probably also a lot of people that just retweet the headline, right? Like the headline has the news. That's all that really matters to them. That's what they want to retweet. Yeah, so exactly. That's all the, but yeah, bots is probably also an issue. I didn't think of that actually, but yeah. I mean, if, mm -hmm. if I just made content that had like spicy headlines and then you click through mm -hmm. the article and it was like, just kidding, that's not what happened. <laughs> like our traffic <laughs> would go through the roof. Like our re reach on Twitter would go through the roof. So, uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of people, uh, social media is a platform for them to, to, 
you know, this term is overused, but to virtue signal, to like signal to their peers what they're all about. And it doesn't actually matter what the content says as long as they can kind of deliver, you know, something consumable by one of their peers that like, you know, is like, they get that like button. <laughs> I mean, is it that people are just reading much less? Like, I, I, I feel like people were reading much more maybe, like back in the day when you actually paid a quarter for a newspaper, which probably inflation adjusted is like a buck 25 or something. But you know, I mean, like, if you read, if you read a thousand tweets, you've technically read more than an article, right? <laughs> um, I, I do think there are statistics about this. I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what they are exactly. But I, I do think people today read more in the sense of they read more words per day, like mm. by a pretty big margin, you know, if you're on your phone, you're just reading, right? Or like mm. I said, on Twitter, or whatever social media app, you use that's a form of reading so it's not that reading time has decreased but it's the length of our yeah it's just smaller bits of reading in, in general yeah so i think media companies have lost market share in terms of the time that they're able to capture from a user um mm. but that's been cannibalized by platforms that have grown the pie but they've also disproportionately grown their share of it so it's still shrunken mm. for traditional media i think that's probably why our conference like our media company relies on our conference to survive. Mm -hmm. So like the conference that, that we run, um, uh, it's profitable. And I think the reason why it's profitable is because like the experience of an in-person event, like when people come to an in-person event, mm -hmm. their attention and focus is there in the in-person event. Like during mm -hmm. the two days, like if you were to take a stopwatch, I think they even have that on like, the, they'll tell you how much time you're spending in an app on your iPhone, mm. like, you know, during the days of the conference, I bet you that like engaging with the content at the conference and talking to other people at the conference, we would be like the number one app that someone is using during those three days, you know? Mm. So like uh, uh, that, those three days, just having someone's attention for three days is enough to build a, one, a, a, a full year of, of a business around. Um, so yeah, I feel like, uh, uh, events may be like the last frontier where a media company can still like make money and, and deliver a, a unique product. Um, that's, that's kind of difficult to cannibalize in digital format. Hmm. So I, I guess what you're suggesting is that, um, the in-person events, the events, uh, subsidize pretty much everything else. And. You know, that, that's sort of the model that you've had to go to. Is that, I mean, to to your knowledge, is that how other media companies are working? Because there's obviously a lot of competitors and a lot of a lot of different niche operators and uh, media companies. So, is yeah, that what they're I doing? Say, I would say a lot of media companies. I would say a lot of media companies. I mean, if you go through like uh, the Forbes, the Fortunes, the Bloombergs, they all have pretty robust um, uh, event businesses. Um, I would say in our industry, every media company is trying to do that. Um, you know, fortunately, there's also a bit of a, what, what do you call it, um, uh, kind of an economy of scale. Um, so, you know, we've been very fortunate that as like more and more events come to crypto, we've been able to uh, kind of maintain the, the top spot of an event. Um, but yeah, I mean, you have the block, you have Blockworks. You have CoinDesk, you have, um, uh, what's the Swan. podcast? Uh, Swan. So, um, 
uh, all doing uh, events to try to be, like tap into that that revenue stream. The challenge is that an event, a small scale event, is not profitable. It loses money. So you have to hit the economy of scale to actually get to profitability on a on a conference. Mm. So that that that's the business model now. <laughs> instead of uh, it, instead of uh, information, it's more like a community experience, maybe, uh, which is kind of strange to me for a media company because that's not what news is about. I'm, I'm sure that's not what you went to journalism school for, Aaron. Yeah, I, I didn't expect to be organizing <laughs> conference. Well, I don't. I don't organize the conference personally. I, I actually do still write, mm -hmm. luckily. But um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, you gotta you gotta find a way, right? And this is a way that we've been able to find. So that's great. But no, definitely not what I. Not what I, I. There weren't any classes on how to organize conferences in journalism school. So since this is a conversation, I want to flip it on you, Jimmy. So like mm -hmm. you're kind of like a, a one-man show media organization. Um, mm -hmm. Maybe not a one-man show. I don't know. I don't know what your team looks like, but um, you do uh, kind of a, a smaller events. You do a podcast. You wrote an awesome book. Um, you've actually written two books, right? I, I've written five. I, even yeah. more. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, five books. <laughs> So, um, like, break down, like, what, like, r your revenue streams, like, books compared to podcasts, compared to, like, in-person events, like, how would you compare them? Yeah, I mean, I, I, I think, um, now that I think about it, and now that you uh, sort of frame it in those terms, uh, the books don't make that much money, um, the newsletter doesn't make that much money, the podcasts don't make that much money, like, the big a large share of my revenue comes from in-person events. It's like holding a class or something like that. Um, yeah. And, you know, like I, I'm, I'm doing it with maybe a slightly different focus. I'm, I'm actually teaching people how to um, code Bitcoin stuff. But that's that's where a lot of that stuff comes from. So I, I don't know, maybe this is sort of like the new model where you have to actively provide value to others to uh, to, I guess, get them to pay you. Yeah, and I mean, you could do that teaching in a digital format, but it wouldn't be the same experience. So it's like people are looking for experiences. They're looking for, you know, thank God everything's not digital is all I can say. Like people, <laughs> people need like the human experience of like touching things and like actually talking to real people. So, um, but yeah, I think, uh, uh, I think that model it, it works it works well uh, the, the there's a, a lot of side events it's been interesting to watch when we do the conference there'll be like hundreds of side events that get organized around the conference um and like one that's done really well is these beefsteak um mm -hmm. the beefsteak dinners which are awesome they're i mean they're like kind of like a party networking event etc um but they're expensive to go to and uh, like there's been a, a business, a real business that's been built around, you know, just doing a carnivore dinner, you know, <laughs> four times a year, basically. Um, and so I, I don't know. I think there's a lot of creativity that comes with events. Mm. Well, I mean, it, 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 it sounds like there's uh, there's some sort of value that people are kind of demanding uh, it, with, with these things. And you're, you're selling to obviously a smaller group because the number of people that read the website versus come to the conference, I mean, it's, it's probably at least an order of magnitude more that read and don't really contribute anything. I mean, is, is everything kind of going to this, like, I guess the event equivalent of a freemium model? 
I don't know. I don't know what to tell you on that. I mean, I think, you know, where to, what I want Bitcoin Magazine to do, and maybe Aaron has a different perspective on this, but what I want Bitcoin Magazine to do is move really to more of a subscription model um, where, you know, we have one really amazing value subscription product uh, and program where you get the print magazine, which I don't know if you've read the print magazine, but our print magazine is is. Well, I, I, I do write the back page every time, so yeah. yeah okay. <laughs> there, so so the, the print magazine is an amazing is an amazing product. It, it doesn't have mm. the distribution it should have, and mm. so uh, like like if we could do like a print magazine with like some new cool product launch that's happening from one of our partners, plus like a signed Jimmy Song uh, book from your latest book you published, and we could like package that up in a in like a cool. Uh, you know, uh, twice a year or four times a year, like package of stuff, like we could really give people that extra value and, um, you know, kind of uh, affect people in more ways than just them reading an article. But I think ultimately at the end of the day, the business model has to be built separate to monetizing eyeballs on an article. I think that that, that in and of itself is not gonna get it done. The, the CPMs on a, a display ad have just gone to nothing. So, mm. Mm. you know, yeah, the other side there to to sort of consider is that so while the subscription model is great, if it's economically viable, like that's the great benefit there. It also kind of sucks as a journalist when you write an article and a lot of people can't read it, right? Mm. You kind of want people to read your article as well. So if it's paywalled, it also like there is also that detriment. So that yeah. that's another yeah, consideration. Yeah, this is where it feels like uh, there there is maybe room for um, like audience engagement that's different than just getting them to read your article, right? Like because at least like with the in person stuff, like you guys were saying, like they they're very popular because you get to interact with people, you you have their focused attention, they can hang out together. Um, does feel like that that's where a lot of people are kind of wanting to or willing to pay money for. And I don't know, maybe maybe like that's the direction that media goes towards. I, I know for example, like safety and he when when he does like his podcast, he has like, uh, you know, his, um, I guess the people that subscribe to his, uh, uh, you know, his website and stuff like in the audience and they can like actively ask questions. And that's something that they're willing to pay for. Um, I don't know. It, it, like, I, I feel like that hasn't really been explored that much with this new media. Is that is that maybe a future that you guys can maybe see this uh, see, see maybe? I mean, I, I would say yes. I, I, I've always thought there's immense potential. And I mean, I think there's plenty of podcasts where people have talked about this, but immense potential with micropayments in media and, and what could be done with Lightning. I think uh, a future where, you know, you have uh, hundreds of millions of people or billions of people that have uh, a wallet extension in their browser and are able to engage with content in new ways. I think there's all sorts of interesting stuff you could do. Uh, embedded. Uh, prediction markets where people can, you know, uh, mm -hmm. uh, bet on something or, um, you know, I've always loved the media content format of, uh, do you remember, uh, I think it's called uh, Feed the Chickens um, or uh, Feed the Polo, Polo Feeds. Uh, it was basically like a live stream 
uh, with yeah, a, yeah. a chicken feeder and you can pay sats to it and it would drop like, you know, some chicken feed and then chickens live on the live stream would come and like, you know, eat the food. Mm. Uh, and I think there was another implementation that was done at a strip club in Tampa where uh, <laughs> you could watch this live stream of the, of the strip club and then pay the QR code and it would make it rain on stage. Um, mm. So I think, um, you know, experimentation with basically uh, in a digital format, allowing people to spin sats to affect the real world in some way, uh, I think is a level of, you know, gamification or engagement that's unique and cool. And the, and the, the math actually, you know, at scale is actually gets kind of interesting, but I have, it hasn't been done yet in a way that's commercially viable. Mm. Yeah. Just on the topic of micro payments more generally. So that, that, so back in the sort of early internet days, right? That was sort of the first vision for uh, just making the internet itself viable. Like this was the stuff that David Chalm was envisioning and this was why he wanted to create digital cash, which by the way, to also pitch that, I'm writing a book on the prehistory of Bitcoin. This stuff is in there, will be released soon. Oh, Aaron, but you anyway, are so... really good at shilling things. All right. Thank you, stuff. thank you. So, um, so that was sort of the original vision before the advertisement model took over. Mm. But the problem with that vision, as Nick Zabo at one point describes, is that there's this mental cost for transactions. Mm. So even deciding if you want to pay to access a website, like that's already, you don't want to deal with that. That's not even worth it. So you just not do it. Even though the money might be worth it, you don't want to make the decision essentially. Like that cost is too high. So that like that would be great but uh, like the only way i could see it work if it's it, if it's very integrated like it has to be very integrated in your web browser like very automatic and there are um what uh, what's this called can you guys help me there was something Umbral like... had like a browser that they were planning to integrate a lot of these um sort of features I'm, or something i'm, I'm yeah, brave I'm thinking maybe of... Oh, was it brave? Yeah, mm -hmm. the, like this thing where you just say, I'll, I'll pay $10 a month mm -hmm. distributed to every website I'm visiting, something like that. Mm -hmm. That could potentially work, I think. How is Brave doing? I've not heard about Brave for a long time. What's <laughs> I going on with <laughs> I, I, I don't you use know, them. I, I actually, I know a little bit about uh, Brave because I, I mm -hmm. turns out I know the owner who bought the company or whatever, and I didn't, I didn't, uh, I just found that, this out. Mm -hmm. So business-wise, they're not doing great. Uh, Product-wise, uh, the Brave browser I think is the number two browser in the world right now. Um, so oh, really, I, mean, I use the Brave. Do y'all use the Brave browser? I've never used it. I had no idea that it was number two. It's a fantastic. It's a fantastic uh, uh, browser. So I highly recommend it. The only thing I, I just don't like the whole shitcoin thing. Exactly. You know, that's, uh, that's the problem. So you know, the original vision was it was, uh, which I actually think someone mm -hmm. still needs to do this. Was um, it was Bitcoin enabled? They run an ad blocker, they block the ads, they replace the ads with their own ads, and then they rev share with the end user, and then they run basically their own ad network. So it's, um, they got sued, uh, which is why they decided to stop. And then they also, um, and they kind of went to the model that Aaron was talking about, where they like distributed a subscription mm -hmm. payment. But uh, I, I think uh, the concept of like opting into an ad network and taking a cut is a pretty cool, uh, pretty cool concept. And uh, I think it's very uh, possible that Brave is actually going to integrate Lightning payments uh, mm -hmm. in in the future. So that's mm -hmm. not 
Are, are they getting rid of their token though? Because that that's the thing that I objected to. That's how they funded the entire company was selling this pre-mined token. Yeah, I, I don't I don't know. I can't. I'm my guess is no. They're not getting rid of the token. They're, they're kind of anchored to that. But um, I do think that they're going to be integrating Bitcoin into the browser, which is uh, a cool step forward because they have hundreds of millions of of daily active users. Um, and so to roll out a, a Lightning wallet to all those users would be pretty crazy. I look forward to somebody making an open source fork that only does the <laughs> lightning part and yeah, then yeah. I can go use it. Well, yeah, and they're open source, so you can fork them pretty pretty easily. So, hmm. Well, so, I mean, I, I guess a uh, question for you, Aaron, like, um, as a journalist, are you are you willing to go and do some of this other? I, I guess you, you already have. You have your own podcast and do, do all this other stuff. But if you had uh, sort of other experiences um, or like if you had other ways to sort of monetize your presence, maybe right, like going and, you know, talking about an article that you uh, you just wrote with, you know, like basically the Patreon model where you 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 have more personalization. Is that is that like attractive or does does that or is that like just sort of yucky? I don't know. Like what? what how do you think about that? I mean, it's it's not at least the way you're selling it to me. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's not my ambition. It's not the reason I got into journalism, right? Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know if I would never necessarily object mm -hmm. to it if it, mm -hmm. if it supports my work and if that means I can do my work and if it's you know as long as I don't have to compromise on my work in any way mm -hmm. like that's that's mm -hmm. obviously very important to me then I don't necessarily have a problem with that and I, uh, maybe some variations of it might even be fun mm -hmm. um, you know I don't mind engaging with my audience for example that's uh, that's a, that can be useful even that 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 can be positive so uh i don't know it depends i i i don't i'm not necessarily against it it would be nice if you could journal do journalism and that's just viable in itself without having to worry about too many other things but we're just not really living in that world anymore or or at least it's becoming harder of across the board well, I mean, there there are people that that do manage to do that. I mean, um, I, I could think of like Tim Pool, for example, um, Russell Brand to some degree, although he's been canceled off of everything. Um, but you know, there 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 are people that you know do it. Um, it just seems like you need so much scale to make it work uh, that it, it's really only reserved for you know the top tier of people. Like, is it like? How, how are you going to get journalists if it's not economically viable, I guess? Uh, yeah, that, I mean, you got to always adapt with the times, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But maybe can you be more specific about what they are doing? Like, what are you referring to? Because I'm, I might not, I don't think I know. Oh, about like Tim Pool and... Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. So they, they have podcasts. They, you know, write on Twitter. They have enormous audiences. They do you know, tipping during the podcast and, you know, you can see it like come in or whatever. That's like been a popular way that a lot of people monetize um, a lot of at least video or live video or something like that. Um, I think most of them have some form of Patreon or something like that, maybe even 
um, you know, special membership to like a private club or something. I think um, uh, that Louder with Crowder guy does that, right? He has like the whole mug club thing. Uh, but there, I mean, there, there's, there's many models uh, by which a lot of these guys do it, but they usually require a big enough audience where, where you're, you're getting essentially funded um, by them. And it's, it's usually not a small amount. Uh, paying a staff of five people even is, is going to be pretty expensive. Um, but, you know, they, they, they manage to do it. Yeah, I think that all the people that you've just named are in the top mm -hmm. 0.0001% of content creators. So I think like mm -hmm. if you look at Patreon, I'm kind of speaking out my ass here a little bit, but if you look at Patreon, <laughs> like I think if you, for you to cr crack like the top, the top 50 content creators on Patreon, mm -hmm. you're making like a million dollars a year. Um, mm -hmm. and, uh, and that's like the top 50 of, I don't know how many millions of Patreon users there are. And then, uh, uh, you know, to be at that level, you're going to have to have some uh, uh, people helping you. So, mm. you know, you're making a million dollars a year, but you have three people helping you create that content. Then after the, at the end of the day, when you run the, the numbers, you know, okay, you're making 500K a year. And then, you know, you're paying taxes and all this stuff. Mm. You're paying your, the rate to Patreon, et cetera. And then before you know it, you're basically just making the salary that you'd make, you know, in corporate America. So um it's that's and that's for the best you know so it's it's tough it's tough mm. well i mean do we do we have too many journalists do we have too many media companies like just is it is it something that too many people are getting into and maybe we just need the market to call a lot of them you know it'd be great I mean, if we were the only media company that that existed <laughs> in our industry no uh, i i don't know i i think that's that's a tough one. Everyone wants to be in media, they think. So I, there's an infinite number of people who don't know how shitty media is that are looking at it like, I could do media. <laughs> Seems so easy, right? Yeah. <laughs> it does. But I, I mean, maybe it's in that way a little bit like Hollywood, where a lot of people want to go in, but you know, only the top people make a lot of money and everybody else is just sort of I don't know, like living uh, kind of a crappy job or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, do do you guys see this? Um, I don't know, like uh, the role of media reducing, or I mean, do do you kind of see your role continuing to grow as we go towards more of a sound money system where? You know, maybe there isn't as much cantalon money floating around because I, I, I suspect that a lot of media uh, currently is being funded by newly printed money. Right? Like, I think like the top advertiser on all the cable network news shows is uh, is pharma. It, yeah, it's pharma, right? Like, so like that 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 seems like a pretty obvious like. Um, evil thing uh that that's happening uh like do you do do you see that changing as we go towards uh bitcoin standard i'm i'm not uh convinced that it will change that much so but this is this is maybe an interesting topic to, because you just wrote a book about this i i, <laughs> I haven't read it yet but is this something you specifically mentioned mm. 
Uh, it's, it's not specifically, um, but I mean, I, I, I did think about writing something about it. Uh, I, I touched on it a little bit with politics and stuff like that, um, but yeah, not, not specifically media. Right. Uh, I forgot the question now. What was your question? <laughs> well, so, change, getting rid of the fiat standard, does that change mm -hmm. the business mm -hmm. model of media? Mm -hmm. And, I, and I, I think it does. I think it does. Mm -hmm. I, don't, I don't know uh exactly how um but i think if you first off if you took the top advertisers and went down the list of them i think absolutely uh uh there is um uh, uh the the more fiat income you're making from the printing press the disproportionately higher you spend on media uh i think that if you took away wars um if you took away subsidized medicine uh, if you took away uh, uh, the power of the political system uh, and therefore, you know, political spending because it's so valuable to, to win, um, that you would knock out a huge percentage of all revenue from media companies and you'd bankrupt a lot of media companies. So that would be, it'd be interesting to watch. I think for our industry, um, we think that we have, you know, at, as long as hyper-Bitcoinization is playing out, there's an ever-growing uh, market for the content that we're creating. And there's a, mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, there's this information asymmetry where there's a lot of people that are gonna have to learn what Bitcoin is who don't know what Bitcoin is. So uh, there's like an opportunity for us to exist for a while, but at some point in time, it's like once everyone's using Bitcoin, like do we have a really a role to play Maybe just as like historians at that point in time, where we're just like you know making the textbook or something. But um, uh, that's yeah. that's what I already am, David. <laughs> I, I already started. Well, yeah. So to answer that question, I think it might, to an extent, change who the advertisers are, right? Mm -hmm. If if we have a Bitcoin standard, then resources are going to be, be distributed a bit differently throughout society. But I don't see that it would necessarily change the model itself. The model. Mm -hmm would probably remain the same, right? I, I don't think, think that's necessarily a fundamental change. Mm. Well, you know, I, 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 go ahead. Just to bring up something spicy and interesting and, and controversial. Uh, so, you know, I have been thinking about in the context of um, uh, Bitcoin governance, soft mm. forks, um, uh, you know, how consensus is, uh, massage let's say or influence etc like uh uh how will that play out in the future in media like will you see uh basically bitcoin bitcoin politics replace politics politics <laughs> and there being competing ideological camps and uh content around those camps and uh, the business model around it. I mean, I thought your blog post was very interesting, Jimmy. I know you, you mm -hmm. took a lot of, of heat for it. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. glad you wrote it, the, the one mm -hmm. on the user-rejected soft forks. Mm -hmm. I, I'm actually uh, in agreement broadly, even mm -hmm. if I have, I think I have a different view than you about like, mm -hmm. you know, the value of drive chains or these different things. Mm -hmm. But I, I generally speaking agree with you that like, at the end of the day, you need some sort of mechanism to reconcile like, you know, where do people stand on something? And, uh, um, you know, like a, a, a world of many, many different UASFs or URSFs um, uh, creates an interesting dynamic 
around mm. the content and information that people need to make decisions. If there was a, if every soft fork also had a URSF associated with it, there'd be so many forks of Bitcoin out there. That in and of itself would create like a, an interesting dynamic of like, hey, we had a new Bitcoin cash to sell every single you know month or whatever <laughs> uh, from a fork. So uh, I I I don't know it, how the media landscape in Bitcoin uh, changes when we think forward, like not maybe a few years, but like. 30, 40, 50 years, like when, when, uh, when BlackRock wants to uh, convince you that, you know, the fork of Bitcoin that they've selected is the actual version of Bitcoin. Um, you know, like, I don't know. I think it's some interesting stuff down the pipe. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I, I feel like some of that played out in 2017 because uh, you, you did have Bitcoin Cash and Roger Ver used the Bitcoin.com media basically as a way to uh, you know promote his thing and you you had they had their own podcast they had their and then they split right. again right like and then they split again after that so yeah. you 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 have this very uh, interesting uh, experiment that we saw in real time. And what, you know, what we found, I guess, like uh, five years later is that almost like there, there's that that place is just crickets, right? Like nobody's there anymore. Uh, they they lost and uh, and they I mean, there there's some a few delusional people that think they've won, but like they, they've lost, right. right? Like it's, it's, they're, but they're not relevant on, anymore. That's on hard forks. We haven't really seen mm -hmm. that dynamic play out yet on the software kind of soft work frontier, which I think could be mm -hmm. interesting. And like, especially when you think about like, there's going to be a hard fork that happens what in like 70 years or something like that. Uh, uh, well, we, yeah, we don't know like they're, they're, they're possible. I mean, the, the timestamp issue is, uh, what, 2104 or something like that. Um, but mm -hmm. but that's, you know, like I, I, so, there, you there know, are ways, there are clever ways to get around it that we, we haven't really discussed. But yeah, if I'm an ultra cynical person and I'm mm -hmm. like BlackRock, I'm mm -hmm. looking at like, OK, I got one chance to rug the entire ETF coming up in, mm -hmm. in 80 years. I need to start laying the seeds today <laughs> to try to convince everyone and, and you know, 2,104 mm -hmm. that, you know, my fix to that bug is going to be the real Bitcoin and not something else. Mm -hmm. But, you know, like I, uh, uh, I, I think the hard forks you're right about, like that's, that's, but soft forks of Bitcoin, I think it's a, a messier picture. Um, well, I mean, the thing is every soft fork turns into a hard fork cause you're going to either resist it or like if it's a user activated soft fork and this is what caused Bitcoin cash to come into existence was when you had the user activated soft fork on one side, they knew that they were at a disadvantage. So they decided, okay, we're gonna, we don't wanna get wiped out, we want wipe out protection. So they, they did a hard fork instead of the, what, what they could have done is just kept the soft fork and said, okay, Bitmain is going to mine on our chain and we're, we're going to do it, but no one wants to get wiped out. So in, in any soft fork scenario, the side that would get wiped out, they're going to, going to do something to make sure that it's a permanent fork. It's it's never going to come back and overtake you or something like that. So I, I don't I don't know if they're going to be materially different. I mean, technically they are different, but the game theory just ends up such that you're going to have two different things and they're going to permanently separate because no one wants to get wiped out. 
Well, I don't think that's necessarily true. So one of mm -hmm. the interesting things we saw in 2017 as well is the Bitfinex futures, right? Mm -hmm. So that was the Segwit2x hard mm -hmm. fork that was going to happen. And before the hard fork actually happened, Bitfinex published the futures and people could start trading essentially the different coins before there even was a split. Mm -hmm. And because it became so obvious on these future markets with what the market preferred, the other side just gave up. So then you can actually prevent splits in, in that way, right? So mm -hmm. if you have a UESF and a URSF, you can have futures markets for that, and the market can figure out what what the market wants. But and and then the other side can just give up, and we can sort of upgrade or not upgrade Bitcoin through that dynamic without necessarily creating the actual splits. So that would be a relatively clean way of doing these Bitcoin politics, so to say. Mm. Well, I mean, so that 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 would be interesting, and I, I suspect if there's like a market for it, that you know a lot of a lot of people will lose heart and so on. But you know, we we saw this kind of play out in a lot of 2018, where we we had so many different forks, um, and they, they were, you know, like they didn't make any sense, and like no one like I. I I think I had a client that wanted to split some of his coins from like a while ago. And I looked up like a year later, how many of those four coins were actually available to trade on exchanges. At one point there were like 32. And by the end there was like four, right? Like, and two of them were like Bitcoin Cash and Bitcoin SV and like maybe Bitcoin Gold and Bitcoin Diamond, that was it. Everything else, all this other stuff, Bitcoin, Bitcoin private and Bitcoin interest and Bitcoin yeah. faith and uh, all the all this <laughs> other stuff. Like there were there were so many that yeah. actually traded on exchanges had a non-zero value. They all disappeared, right? Like yeah. that, and you know maybe maybe that's uh, that's talking about like uh, the the way these things kind of go. I, I I don't know if. Uh, media organizations can get supplied because money does sort of have that network effect where, you know, like uh, you, you pile onto the one that's winning and that's that's kind of where it goes. At least that's what it seems like to me. Well, what about like a user rejected software like um, like, mm -hmm. OK, CTV, let's say CTV is mm -hmm. gaining momentum. Like mm -hmm. what if like I, I I like CTV? I mean, I like all, mm -hmm. all this shit and we try to avoid mm -hmm. we try to avoid getting our media company like Mm. in it because that's <laughs> have an agenda I, I don't know david you you've been pretty pro ordinals i i'd say that 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 was pretty obvious <laughs> but i mean regardless well, you know, we uh my my personal view is not the, the the view of bitcoin magazine so we try to avoid mm. keeping bitcoin magazine from getting uh uh too much into it though we mm -hmm. still mm -hmm. get into it too much but like, uh, okay, like CTV, like if I were to like uh, uh, campaign against CTV, take all the criticisms that exist on CTV, push for a URSF for CTV, um, like could I get 3% of the nodes? Like what, what percentage of participants would I need to get to buy into a URSF um, to create a no CTV fork of Bitcoin? Um, that's gonna be traded on an exchange, that someone's going to create futures of that's just that's going to generate hundreds of millions of dollars in trading volume um mm. you know like like uh, like i think you probably could you could probably you could probably take every uh uasf and you could probably have a competing ursf for it 
and get some percentage of people to buy in on it, which would be an interesting, interesting dynamic. Uh, um, well, yeah. it would, it would cost the people a lot. Well, go, go ahead, Aaron. I think it will be a lot like the hard fork scenario we saw. Like the first time someone does it, it will work fairly well, and then the second time will be less, and then eventually, yeah, yeah. You know, not not necessarily the URSF. Like the UASF site could also be the failing site. I just I do think there would probably be a very winner take all sort of dynamic as we've seen with the hard forks. And so maybe the first time it kind of works, but then it just sort of fizzled out and everyone realizes you just need to be on the right side. And otherwise, otherwise you end up like, uh, yeah. um, Well, you could, of course, just you could, of course, just keep both sides of the coins and then one of them will, you know, that's always possible. You have a free option on the on the what happens. Well, I, but then you've lost a lot of money on the opportunity cost. The people that sold Bitcoin cash when it was, you know, 15, 20, 30 percent, you know, that they they made out much better than the people that sold at one percent like five years later. So, you yeah, know. sure. Sure. All right. All right. So anyway, <laughs> let's anyway, try to wrap the bow on this thing. It's we 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 are talking about uh, new media and sort of the changes that we expect Bitcoin to see uh, going forward. And, you know, may, maybe we do get sort of these uh, these kinds of topics becoming a lot bigger uh, within the media as Bitcoin becomes more of a standard. Um, but I, I guess uh, as far as uh, traditional media is concerned, um, do you do you see them changing their model? I mean, it, it, like perhaps I'm I'm uh, I'm being very doomerish with them, but uh, they 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 seem to be subsisting mostly on Cantillon money at this point. What what happens to all of that? Like, the, does it just kind of collapse? Like. I mean, you guys know about the traditional media landscape a little better than me, at least. So, like, what what are your thoughts? I mean, I, I think absolutely it can collapse. I mean, mm-hmm. I think you've started to see that actually this year and last year um, with some companies that were perceived as, you know, massive media companies, BuzzFeed. I mean, look at mm-hmm. BuzzFeed's stock price down 99%. I, um, uh, I think absolutely it can implode. Um, and you know i guess the in one sense you would think that when a media company implodes it creates business opportunities for another media company but in this the dynamic we're in right now when a media company implodes it just gets subsumed by social media so you know i uh uh i think um you know the beautiful thing about capitalism is that no one can ignore it like like businesses will always react to the incentives and always react to, um, you know, having to make money. But uh, uh, people can't make money out of thin air in a, in a sustainable fashion. So if you cut off the printing press and there's not another alternative mo- uh, viable model, um, then they'll just go bust. And the executives will reward their themselves on the way out the door uh, at the cost of the shareholders and at the cost of the employees. Hmm. Yeah, like I said earlier, I see it more as a shift. Uh, like there, mm-hmm. the resources will shift throughout society if that happens, mm-hmm. but the model of media will stay the same. So in that case, it's other sponsors or other advertisers, right? That, I, I don't see a fundamental change in media itself because of because of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I think about it, and I, I 
I, I do feel like it, it's going to be more individual driven, maybe personality driven, um, as opposed to in the past where, you know, you, you could be a reporter for somebody and no one knew who you were really. <laughs> um, nowadays, it, 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 it seems like you kind of have to have a personality to go with it, even in like sports journalism, right? Like if you're Shannon Sharp and you have an, a built in audience, you can go start your own thing. If you're Pat McAfee, you can do the same thing. But you know, you're Steve Young, like people know who you are, but you don't you don't really have like a following per se. You've just been an analyst on ESPN for 20 years or something like that. So, um, you yeah, know, that's that's definitely a trend we've seen uh, happen with the emergence of the Internet as well. That's mm -hmm. the individual journalists and the individual personalities have become more important than the mm -hmm. brand of the media publication itself mm -hmm. or, or alone the brand. Yeah. Yeah, which I find very interesting because that that seems much more like what humans are built for. It's like you you want to know the person uh, as that's doing the reporting and not just the report itself. It's uh, um, you know like that that's how you most people decide whether or not to trust somebody is by getting to know them or something like that. So. Uh, that, yeah, but you're that's... also stuck with the Dunbar number, right? Yeah. That's what it's called, right? So yeah. so you can know every journalist, so it's sometimes useful if you, if there's a publication and you know, all right, they, they're probably pretty decent because I like what I've been doing so far. Yeah, yeah. I, I, get, think I, there's, I think there's still a place for that as well. Well, I, the, this is where I, I, I want to kind of get away from, right? Like is this idea of a trusted third party, right? The oh, I, I, I trust everything from the New York Times or whatever is on Fox News or whatever. That, that's the model that seems to be like exploited by the authorities to you know, make us do whatever. So um, I, I would like to see more individuals and may, maybe you don't need more than you know, 20 journalists that you follow uh, or something like that because maybe that's enough. I, I don't know. Um, and, you know, you know, they, they can sort of bring people under their brand and so on and recommend other people or something. Um, but that, that, that seems to be a healthier way than let's just trust this monolithic company that I, I, I don't know what their business model I, I, is. I agree with that. I mean, I, I think that that would apply to Bitcoin Magazine well. Um, mm. But I think also what you lose in that is like there are new, there are new content creators, there are new journalists, mm. there are new thinkers. And uh, now, like, what's their way to capturing attention if, like, the only way, you know, is to be a, uh, an apprentice of someone who's already trusted? Like, it's, it, it um, dramatically reduces um, your exposure to kind of new information sources. And if you think back across, like, you know, who do you follow in Bitcoin? I mean, Twitter is a great example of this. Like, if if you could only follow the Twitter accounts that you were following five years ago and you can't follow any new Twitter accounts after that, you know, versus what does your Twitter feed look like right now? You know, I mean, mm. so I think, I think there is a lot of value in, in having um, low barriers to entry of, of, not low barriers to entry, but, but ha having a, a vehicle, a platform for people to accelerate their discovery. Um, mm. Yeah, I would also push back a bit against the idea that a media institution can simply be exploited mm. because a media institution also has a reputation that it wants mm. to uphold, right? So mm. if there's a, there is also an uh, incentive for them to provide something to uphold that reputation. So I don't think it's, 
I, I think there's a place for that. I, I do also agree with the individual and that that's, that's, that's an actual trend and I think that's probably a good trend. Mm. I still think there's a place for publication reputations as well. Mm. Well, uh, let's, let's hope that things get better because um, it, it does feel like the state of journalism right now is, is pretty rough, um, especially about the stuff that we all know we should know more about, like the whole Jeffrey Epstein stuff or the Google antitrust lawsuit, just nobody covers any of that, right? Like, be, like on either side, because in a sense, like there are too many elite people that are kind of, um, you know, caught in the crosshairs or something. So I would like to see that change. I'm hoping that changes. Yeah. Yeah. The pandemic was unbelievably eye-opening yeah. for a lot of people in that, in that regard. Mm. Yeah. So anyway, um, I'll, I'll give you guys a chance to uh, promote something that you guys are involved in. So um, I, I know you guys have a lot of lot of people coming to this uh, this conference that are maybe not as familiar to the people that are in the United States, for example, um, that, you know, have a following in their respective European countries and so on. So can you tell us a little bit more about uh, Bitcoin Amsterdam? Yeah, Aaron, who are the most controversial speakers that we have from the uh, from the Netherlands? Oh, uh, the most controversial one would be Eva Vladingerbroek. Oh, okay. She's the, she's the I'm on a panel protest. with her. I, I, I didn't I didn't oh, know who are? she was until like I, I looked her up. Uh, I was like, oh, OK, she sounds very interesting. Yeah, she's definitely controversial within the Netherlands. I don't know what, what are the other controversial ones. Do we have I, more, David? I think she's that's, the that's first a, person that we yeah, got email for, uh, for sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I, I like to judge uh, speakers by how much hate mail we get around a certain speaker. It kind of like is almost like a, a counter signal to to how interesting they are. And so uh, she has generated a lot of. <laughs> well, she, she, I, I, I was surprised when I looked her up on Twitter, 600,000 followers or something. I was like, okay, she's, she's famous outside of Bitcoin. Like that's, that's, you don't get that many without like doing something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, she's been on, um, like Tucker Carlson's show, mm -hmm. I think, and she's done mm -hmm. some international stuff. Okay. I think, uh, I'm probably most uh, excited about the Stella Assange, uh, Edward mm -hmm. Snowden, uh, panel that we're doing. Um, we actually had Edward Snowden to Bitcoin 2019, the first Bitcoin conference we put on. And so, uh, cool to have him back. Um, and yeah, I mean, I think, uh, what I get the most interest out of at the conference is seeing the things that people are building and tinkering on. I think we do a really good job of trying to showcase like I guess the edge of innovation in in, in Bitcoin. Um, so of course we're gonna have like the lightning enabled beer taps. Uh, I think um, uh, uh, what's uh, what's his name? Uh, ben Ben Ark, Bitcoin socialist uh, has some cool lightning stuff that he's bringing to the conference. Um, so yeah, I, I'm excited to see people in person. The, the Netherlands has a very good Bitcoin community and Bitcoin vibe, very OG Bitcoin vibe. Um, so I'm excited uh, to see people in person. Aaron, you want to add anything? Uh, I mean, for me, it's a home game, right? So that's, that's always fun. Uh, the location is really fantastic. Like it's in this old building and the production value is just outstanding. I think it's the best looking conference in the world, at least the best looking Bitcoin conference. Mm -hmm. Like they got all the lights and the, 
like the the whole thing is just pretty spectacular so yeah last year was a lot of fun this year one last pitch i'm gonna start selling my book which i'm pretty excited about <laughs> i'm gonna be autographing mine too so we'll probably be at the same table or something yeah i'll have 21 editions so it's gonna be a limited edition and i'll uh sign all of them just the 21 you're gonna have only 21 there at the conference that's right. I'll only have 21 special limited editions at the conference, and then okay. the rest is following a couple of months later. All right. And so you are making no, it but I'm a, One last question. Looking forward to it. So yeah. autographed versions of your book, like, uh, what do you sell those at a different price than non-autographed? Yeah. Uh, well, I, 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 uh, I PGP sign my uh, my books, so that that's a uh, that's a whole thing that I do. Um, so you you don't need a handwriting expert to verify. Um, so I, that's something that I've been doing since I published my first book, and yeah, oh, I, I plan to do that. Yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> awesome. That's it. Oh, uh, and what is how much more does that sell for? Uh, well, so I've been selling the paperback, uh, which is this version for uh, the autographed one for $50. And I'll, I'll have a few, at least a few copies of the hardcover one, which I, I uh, which will be like $100 or something like that. And then, Dope. yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be fun. And uh, yeah, looking forward to seeing you guys there. It should be. Yeah, let's go. And if you haven't bought your tickets, go to b.tc slash Amsterdam. I believe that's where you can go buy them. So. What's a good discount code? I, I should have asked the team before getting on. Uh, Aaron, <laughs> discount code? Do you know one? No, sorry. Oh, uh, okay. Wait, I, I have one. Give me, give me one second. Uh, right. Amsterdam discount code. I, I do have a browser up and running. Um, code is Jimmy Song for 10% off. All Let's right, go. There you Thank go. you, Jimmy Song, so people <laughs> all over the world. Uh, all right. Well, I look forward to seeing you guys in Amsterdam. Jimmy, I'm going to be at your book signing, uh, picking up a book. Uh, Aaron, likewise, don't sell out before I can uh, get in that queue. Get one of those 21. <laughs> so the first one, so there's going to be 21, right? The first one, so the book is called the Genesis book. Uh -huh. So the Genesis book of the Genesis book, number one, there will be auctions off actually okay it should be it should be number one. zero it should be number zero <laughs> uh, maybe <laughs> well i can still do that actually yeah maybe you're right you're probably right actually yeah i i think if i if i is it is it height one or height zero i forget like how how blocks are numbered always get that mixed up it's Genesis like, block uh, started with zero, zero right yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So that that might. Be I'll, that. I'll consider that. Good <laughs> point. <laughs> you got you gotta you gotta do these things correctly. All right. Anyway, thank you guys, um, and uh, look, looking forward to um, yeah hanging out. Yeah. Likewise. See you, Jimmy. See, See you, Aaron. All right. Unchained Capital is a sponsor of this podcast. I'm an advisor to the company. I know the team well, and I'm excited for what they are building. If you need multi-sig, collaborative custody, or a Bitcoin-native financial services partner, learn more at Unchain.com.